Welcome to My Ed Expert, specializing in what's possible in education. By merging research, practice, and passion, we provide insights from top educational thought leaders for right now implementation. Now, here's your host, author Susie Pepper Rollins. Hi there, I am so glad you joined me today. We're going to be talking about student-centered learning, something we've been talking about for a long time. It's a process, right? Trying to craft lessons, change our learning walks, our look-fors, putting more on students' shoulders, but not just more, a higher level of rigor, more accountability, getting them to really dig in, want to learn, that sense of wonderment and amazement about what they're studying. This is a big question. So what I've tried to do is pull out five really big ideas for student-centered learning. How do we get there? So buckle up, grab a pencil. I'm going to start with number one, which is really the underpinning of student-centered learning. There's a big decision we make when we craft lessons for student-centered learning. Here it is. What do I need to explicitly teach, explicitly model, explain to you, show to you? What, what, what needs to be my role in this as the educator, the person with the degrees about this, about this concept? And then what can I leave for you to explore on your own and discover on your own? That's the big question. What do I need to teach and what can I leave for you? Because I'm going to carve out time for my students to explore and research and read and study and all this kind of stuff. Let me just show you an example. This is a simple lesson, but it, it, it really shows, I believe, the difference between sort of a traditional approach and a student center approach. It's an economic standard about banking. Yes, banking. So, National banks, local banks, credit unions, students are to compare and contrast the different kinds of institutions where we keep our money, borrow money, and all that kind of stuff. So to take that that lesson, what I did is first created a a real-world problem because that's a cornerstone of student-centered learning, relevance. So here's the real-world problem that they're given. You're moving out of the house. Your mom's packing it up. You got your first job, you're on your own, buddy, and now you've got to manage your money and you're going to need to find a bank. So the first thing I'm going to do as a hook, as a success starter, is a little survey. What do you think you'd like in a bank? Are you looking for a lot of locations, a lot of ATMs? Are you looking for maybe an online bank? Are you looking for a big bank that has a ton of locations? Maybe you're planning a field in which you're going to travel. Or are you looking for a local bank where you can walk in and they all know your name and they live in your neighborhood? So that's the first thing is first, just think about what are you looking for in a bank? That's the opening piece of this lesson. The second piece, the teach part is incredibly short, maybe just a few minutes. The teach part might incorporate some slides about what is a national bank? What's a local bank? What's a credit union? And this new kind of banking we've had are a lot of online kind of banks. So a little bit of background information on banks. Now, I believe that's probably enough. I could just tell them everything, right? I could create a presentation and tell them everything. But instead, I'm going to now turn it over to them. And I would have them have some links for banks in our area with a partner or in a group that would go research the bank's websites. Using a graphic organizer, they're going to gather information about community involvement of the bank, interest rates they offer, the number of locations, all the different features these banks have. They're going to then select a bank. They don't have to pick the same bank as their partner, but they've maybe researched with their partner. Now, your job is to choose that bank. 
towards the end of the lesson, I'm going to have them maybe four corner it where I'm going to say, all right, if you chose a national bank, go over here. You're going to meet some like-minded people. If you chose a credit union, go to this corner. You're going to meet some like-minded people and you're going to now create your case. But still there will be this last portion, which is their independent work. They've done all this work studying banks. Now, I want you to explain to me what bank you're picking, what are your steps to opening your account, and those kinds of things. So compare that to a PowerPoint where I would just explain to them for a half hour what it is about banks, or we read about banks. So this is going to put a lot more on the student's shoulder, and they're going to, shoulders, and they're going to remember this lesson about banking. Let's move to science. Let's say that we're teaching the respiratory system. My tendency might be, let me just tell you about the respiratory system. Let me give you a PowerPoint and you copy my notes about the parts of the respiratory system. For a student-centered learning experience, however, I'm going to open with something like a lab. It may be as simple as blowing up balloons or something where we're using our respiratory system. We're making notes about it. For my lesson, I may have a short video or pictures of the respiratory system in action. And now I'm going to turn it over to my students. And I might choose a jigsaw for that. And I'm going to have expert corners, a trachea corner, a lung corner, nasal passage corner, etc. Et so the way I explain jigsawing to students is you're in your comfortable little nice home with your group, but you're going to move away from home for a short period of time. And you're going to go to expert stations where there are multiple articles, some books, some videos, and you're going to become an expert on the lungs. Then you're going to come back and teach that to your group. So now they've gone away, they've come back and taught, and they're going to teach and talk about the respiratory system, but there's still going to be an independent part after this in which students might draw a diagram, label a diagram, explain something, create a video, whatever you want to have them do to explain the respiratory system. One more example. I, I created this lesson once for government teachers. They were going to be teaching pork barrel spending, which is a different way of budgeting. And it's, it's a notorious sort of thing here. Uh, but guess what? There's actually two sides to pork barrel spending, which students will learn in this lesson. So for the opener, what I would do is I have students have to try to guess what do you think is actually in the federal budget and what's not. No one ever gets it right because some of these are crazy things we're paying for as taxpayers. So they're going to have to pick what do you think is in the budget, what's not, just to kind of get their intellectual curiosity going. My short mini lesson is going to be what is pork barrel spending? Where did it come from? Why is it called pork? And what's the opposite of that in terms of how the normal budgetary process is? Now, I'm looking at this lesson and I'm thinking, you know what? This is perfect for stations. I'm going to have one station with editorials for and against pork barrel spending. I'm going to have another station where they're queued up news interviews where they click on and they see different reporters interviewing Congress people about pork barrel spending. The next station might just be sort of an informational station. Text, that's where I've got my textbook, some articles to read. All right. And then maybe another station has a video explaining pork barrel spending. How I'm going to explain this to my students is they're going to have something to do at every station. And I want them to be aware of their thought processes because they're going to be develop, developing an opinion about pork barrel spending. At the end of these stations, they're going to have to make a case. Are you for pork barrel spending or against pork barrel spending and defend your position? I might have when they go back to their home groups, a write around where they student, one student makes their a commentary about I'm for pork barrel spending because of this. They pass it to the right. That student reads their comments and says, Hmm, you know what? I agree with what you're saying, but I disagree on this. 
and they, they chime in and then we rotate those papers one more time. Yeah. And they make a comment. At the end of this lesson, I may have students do a walk the line where we tape, put tape across the room. I play the Johnny Cash song. Yes, I do. And they have to stand up and make a case for or against. So I've got signs for pork barrel against somewhere in the middle and they're going to make a case. But before they leave, they're going to have to put something in writing expressing their own point of view of what they've learned about pork barrel spending. So what do all those scenarios have in common? Well, they're relevant. The students have a compelling job to do. I've made careful decisions about what I need to show and teach them and what they can discover on their own. There's a healthy dose of individual accountability. And guess what? That rigor is pretty high. And let's remember, rigor isn't more. Rigor is the level these kids are thinking at. And once again, I could have just explained to them what port barrels, I could have just explained to them the respiratory system. But what I did is made decisions about, I want them to discover on their own. And another thing that all of these have in common is a high level of student autonomy. So the first point I want to make on these big five is the underlying decision we make about what do we need to teach and what can I let them do on their own? That's a very big decision. Second big, the second big item for student-centered learning is relevance. And I touched on that in those scenarios. For example, one of my favorite lessons, and I have this on my expert. Everybody's welcome to grab it. I have it as a, as a jigsaw, but I teach it as a placemat when I do professional development. What students have to decide is this, which invention has made the bigger impact on the world, the cell phone or the cotton gin. Now, What I do in the beginning is I have students in their groups brainstorm and they put some answers down about how the cell phone has changed our lives, how it impacts our economy, how it impacts our, our relationships. And I granted this is a little sneaky, but then my little mini lesson is about the cotton gen. I say, you know what? Look how inventions can really rock our worlds, right? But we're going to be going back in time and talking about a different invention, the cotton gen. And I'm only going to have a handful of slides, but it's going to be about Eli Whitney it's going to have pictures of the cotton gin. It's going to have pictures of his other big, uh, his other big invention, interchangeable parts. I'm going to show pictures of the cotton business, what it looks like today, how big of a business this is. And then I'm going to have a couple of slides about the time period we're going to talk about, all right, which is way back in time, backbreaking work of picking cotton. So what I'm going to do there, why did I start with a, why did I start with the cell phone? Because that relates to them, right? If I had said, hey, kids, what do you want to know about that cotton gin? I got to go to the bathroom. I need to call the nurse. I got to get out of here. Nobody wants to do that. So I'm going to start with relevance to get them pulled in. For example, if I'm teaching juvenile justice, I'm going to start with articles from our neighborhood, from our community, from our state, from our region, in which some juveniles have, have done some things that are pretty regrettable. And let students realize, hey, what do all these articles have in common? Their age the process that kicked in, what kinds of things happen. So it's going to have to be very relevant. For inherited traits, rather than jumping right into the science of inherited traits, I'm going to start with a survey. You tell me about you. Do you have dimples? Do you have a hitchhiker thumb? And I'm going to ask them questions about themselves. So sometimes I'll use a survey. So one of the key points of of student-centered learning is, for really all learning, but we're talking about student-centered learning, I got to dig deep and find some relevance for kids. Sometimes that's a challenge, I understand. So number one is the decisions we make. What do I have to teach? What can you do on your own? Number two is relevance. Number three, this is a big one. And boy, we've been struggling with this since I don't know when. 
It's the amount of teacher talk and amount of student talk. It's the ratio of teacher-student talk. It's so off, right? Here's what we know. We, oh, gosh, it's disheartening. But still, the research is showing, and this is from Hattie, 70 to 80% of classroom time, kids are just trying to listen to someone talk. And we do not learn very well just listening to someone talk. We just tune it out after about 10 minutes, right? So we have to think about how we can flip this. ELA teachers cover your ears because one piece of research, and this is from 2014 from Davidson, and the other author is spelled T-S-E-G-A-Y-E. The biggest area of talk was ELA. It's 83%, over 83% of that classroom was was uh, with a teacher talking. Here's the thing that really gets me, though. We go back in time. There was a study in 1969 about ELA that the teachers were talking three times more than students. It's not just, and it's not just ELA. 1912, it showed in a study that 64% of the time was devoted to teacher talk. That's how long we've been talking about talk, right? So, you know, if we look at this research, of course, it's not really comparing apples to apples, but according to this research, we're talking more now than teachers did in 1912. But here's the staggering part. I've got 28, 30 students in my class. And if 20%, if they're only getting 20% of the talk time, I got to divide that up between 30 students. That's crazy. So that's one thing we got to think about. Now, when we look at the active classroom, it was a really interesting study by Yair. His, his last name is Y-A-I-R, where the kids wore wristwatches and it beeped and they beeped all day and they logged in what they were doing. And what this study sh- revealed is that students were most engaged when they work in groups or labs, like in science. And then I look at another study out of Purdue that did two different science groups the active kids, active students in our classroom, and the traditional, and the scores were much higher when the students had those active kind of lessons. I always worry about our boys because they 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 got the, the biggest chunk of office referrals, the biggest chunk of dropout rates, higher failure, higher prison. Gosh, it goes on and on. So we want to really make sure we're zoned in on our boys in this active classroom. So we want to think about how we can really flip that teacher talk time and be aware of our talking time. So that was number three. So we first talked about the decision of what I need to teach and what you can have. We talked about teacher time uh, and we talked about relevance. Okay, number four. The student-centered classroom is highly visible. We're not in this, the traditional classroom, we're in this panicked rush in the last few minutes. Oh no, class is almost over. Let's do it. Take it out the door. Then they head down the hall. I'm, I can't even look at them until they're gone. And unless I'm planning on calling them at home, I don't know why I'm doing that. The student-centered classroom, we are, we are looking at evidence of learning from that opening bell to the closing bell. During the success starter, I want them writing, talking, documenting, responding. I see their work. Right after we teach, I'm checking for understanding. I'm looking at what they're doing. During the work period, there's tons of work to look at. At the close of class, another piece of work. I'm a big portfolio person, and which just means, you know, a manila folder that the kids have decorated, basically. But I have their work in order of their targets, and it's and I want to see their work. I, 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 when I'm in classrooms, I only take pictures of student work. I zero in on the work. Now, here's one thing we want to talk about. Visible work is specific, right? I want to see where you are. I can't give you feedback. Your partner can't give you feedback. You can't analyze your work unless it's visible. So we want to really focus on getting rid of this sort of thumbs up. Everybody got it? Thumbs up? Okay, those kids are lie, lie, lying with their thumbs. We could write little liars on their thumbs because they just put those thumbs in the air. Why do they put their thumbs in the air? 
They just want us to move on. If it, we make it so easy for them here, just put a thumb in the air. So if I run into that kid's mother at the grocery store, how'd he do in science today? Well, his thumb was up in the air. So I think we're good. You know, I, I can't, we, we have to have something more visible. So that includes a bunch of those strategies of kiss your brain, clap three times, all that stuff. I need visible proof of what you're doing as your work is developing. So we want to make those class, those classroom assignments really visible. So number four is highly visible work that I can look at. You can look at all day. So we're really, really aware when that student leaves my class or we, tra- or we transition to another subject. At the very least, I should be able to traffic light that student with a yellow light, a green light, or a red light. I need to know all the time where my students are so that we can help. If, we, if we're aware of that information, it's, we're going to have so, students are going to do so much better at school. All right, number five, you ready? Student-centered learning, here's one of the big ones. It's, it's a different role. The teacher has a different role and the student has a different role. Because we're giving learners a bigger chunk of time and a bigger chunk of responsibility and greater responsibility comes, they have greater autonomy. So my role really is to create these fantastic, relevant learning experiences that inspire students to read, discover, research, talk, examine, you know, experiment instead of feeding them information. So it's really our hard work is on the planning side. Our hard work is on the planning side. Every teacher listening knows that when we have a great inspired lesson, we have very few classroom management issues, right? It's, it's not perfect, not perfect, but it's a big change. So traditionally what we will do is go home. We look at that learning target and we create a presentation. We research, we annotate, we make notes, we highlight, we make a PowerPoint, we put pictures on it, we crop the pictures we come back and we present this out. And of course, we've done all that great work. It's how we know the information. It's, and it's, and if we're doing that, it's going to be very forgettable to our learners. So it's about how we craft our lesson. Now, let me talk about math a little bit because I've given some examples in other areas. Math's a little different. We're going to open with relevance. We're going to model. We're going to check for understanding and clarify misconceptions. And then we're going to put them in teams and pairs to practice. All right. But it's going to be very structured. And so we're going to look at them. They're going to give each other feedback. We're going to be giving feedback. But again, it's incredibly visible. They're not hovering over a screen. They're not hovering over a piece of paper. We've got to see their work. It's going to have to be a very safe environment because math is different. It's kind of like practicing music or learning how to shoot a layup. I've got to practice. I got to get my hands on the ball. I got to be able to have some time with this. So it's a little bit different in math, but it's, it's, uh, but it's still very student centered. One thing in math I'm always looking for is if that lesson, we don't want that lesson to go straight from warm up, teach, here's your work. Okay. We want to be sure and have that in the middle where they're practicing, working, collaborating, getting stronger and stronger. And it can be heavily differentiated too. Okay, let's talk about some big pieces here because I've given you the five, but these five come come with some myths, come with some hurdles, come with some questions. Big question that comes up is where do I get the time? Time is on the planning side. So we're going to spend more time on the planning side so that we have great days at school and we have less have to spend less time on the behavior management and all that kind of stuff time. So we're going to have time. The other part is in our instructional frameworks. We have to have carve out time. Now, what I've done for you, and I'm only going to keep it up there for one week, is I've put a screenshot of my four pie charts that I use in the active classroom. 
So there are four models that from which teachers choose to teach their lessons. All of them have a ton of green. That green is green for a reason. That's go students go. So you want to, you can grab those. I'll put them under my little area there. And again, I'm going to keep that up for a week. So you're welcome to use those for the week. So how do we carve out the time? We got to really look at our instructional frameworks. One thing that's a, that a real struggle, these things got embedded in our school teaching years ago, and we're having a heck of a time getting them out, are these do now passive warm-ups. They started as a classroom management technique of get something on the board so the kids get in and have some routines and rituals. Has value, has some value, right? They've gotten longer and longer. And if we're spending 15, 20 minutes on that, if we're spending 10 more minutes going over homework, Take that 20 minutes and let's say that student has six classes a day and we're doing that all day. Multiply that by 180 days. There's a big chunk of time. So we had to be diligent about how much time we open, how much time we teach, how much time we give to the students and be very diligent. One of the biggest myths about active, the active students in our classroom is that it lacks structure. It's actually more structured. In, in order to let students get up and move, get up and do a jigsaw, get up and do stations, do these kinds of strategies. I have to have uh, some routines or rituals in place. They're actually very structured. We don't just pull kids together. It's not group work, right? It's not generic group work. People don't like group work because some kid who's highly grade oriented, which would have been me, is going to just take over because they're worried about their grade. We do more collaborative techniques. And what's the difference? The difference is every child has a job to do, and my job is probably different than my neighbor's job. And so you can't take over my job. So there's independent work, but here's the big one. My work is going to now feed into something that is required by the team, and there's heavy accountability because of that. Because the students are aware without even telling them that, oh my gosh, I'd better do my part because the team won't be able to do well without my piece. And a comment about classroom management. Look, it's hugely important, but here's what I've learned over the years. If someone tells me there's a classroom management situation, I first look at instruction. I first go in and support that teacher with instruction because we're going to fix a lot of that. It's not going to fix all of it, but it's going to leave me with just a couple of students where I can come up with some techniques for those students rather than tackling this whole thing. Because if there are a lot of uh, behavior issues in there, it's instructional most of the time. All right, some of the myths, we talked about structure. Okay, here's one that's really interesting. There are students, and you're going to be able to come up with names when I say this. There are students who just so want that grade and just want to get the paper in the bin, all right? They just, they don't want to do student-centered learning. They want, just give me this. Matter of fact, you can tell me what you want from me for the whole semester, and I'll do it and put it in the bin, all right? So that's, we're doing those students a disservice, all right, we're doing those students a disservice. There may be times that I let a student not work in a group, but here's what I'm going to tell students. Employers aren't just looking at your grades. Employers are looking for someone who can manage a team, lead a team, work effectively in a team. So even though we're talking about reconstruction or we're talking about photosynthesis today or the water cycle, you're also learning how to overcome obstacles, manage work in a team, get something in on time, and work together. So those are that's one of the things we want to work through is, is getting kids pulled into this. All right. So here's the summary of this. We have five things I've outlined. The first is a big decision about what do I need to teach? What do you need to do? The teacher talk ratio. 
relevance, the highly visible classroom. And a big issue is what's my role as an educator and what's my role as the student? Because at some point in the middle of class, I'm going to facilitate and give feedback rather than being at the front. Thank you so much for joining me today. I don't want to leave without thanking you, the most important person in the world. Thanks for all that you do for your kids, for inspiring them, for opening doors every day. Join us every Wednesday for our podcast and have a great one. Bye-bye. We are so glad you joined us on this episode of My Ed Expert. For more resources on the ever-evolving realm of education, head on over to myedexpert.com and get inspired by all of our author's work through downloads, strategies, and best practices. While you're there, hop on to get updates right to your inbox because you don't want to miss a thing right here on My Ed Expert.